Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Amity. And I'm Laura. Let's get started. It's a lot. It's so good. It is so good, and it hurts my head. We were talking before we started recording just how for me personally, when I'm reading and studying it, I have to take brain breaks because it's so good. And a lot of it, like, honestly, like I love the Chronicles of Narnia and I've read those several times and his way of conveying his message in this is he has a distinct voice and that voice comes across whether he's talking in in mere Christianity or talking about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. He is explaining these extremely complicated principles to everybody. And it is sort of like a story. To me, it's sort of like a storytelling voice because he's just like breaking things down. It's like when he's wrote Chronicles of Narnia, it's just very wonderful for children because they can understand it, even though he's created like this, you know, fantasy world. And a lot of times fantasy can be hard to follow, but he's made it very accessible for children. And that's the same with this. It's very accessible. But then when you go back to try to explain it to yourself or summarize it, then you're like, wait, I can't. I am not him. You, you're reading it. You're like, I understand this. And then you go to try to explain it. You're like, okay, maybe I didn't understand this. Yeah, exactly. And I find myself doing that, like trying to explain what I've been reading to people, like mostly my husband. And I'm like, okay, what I did, that just doesn't make any sense. I It made sense in my head. Yes. And it made sense when I was reading it, but I'm not sure that I'm conveying it right. So bear with us. And I found myself going, I feel like the best way to summarize this is not to summarize it, but just to like read his exact words. A hundred percent. And so that's, anyway. I find myself doing that a lot. Like, okay, maybe I'll just say this sentence because he said it great. So this book, we're doing book two today, What Christians Believe. It's kind of funny because as a Christian... You know, but then you read this and you're like, okay, I didn't know that. Or it's a little or different. Or just hadn't thought about it like that. Yes. It's so good. The other interesting thing I think about this is, you know, we belong to a church who has like church leaders that, that teach us stuff. Right. And I think a lot of, I don't know, as I'm reading this, I see a lot of what we're taught in it. We do know that the church leaders have read C.S. Lewis a lot because mm-hmm. they talk about him yeah. and they quote him a lot. And so it's just yeah. kind of interesting. Or I'll think like, oh, I didn't know other religions believed that. Hopefully we'll make this fun and not too complicated and <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but okay. So chapter one is called The Rival Conceptions of God. And like I said, as I was reading my summary of it, I was like, I don't even know if I understand what I wrote, but we're going to try. <laughs> he starts out by like, what does it mean to be a Christian? I like this too, that Christians don't need to believe that other religions are totally wrong. So that's another thing that I think that we have been taught since we were little kids, that like all religions have a little bit of truth. And he thinks that all religions have good points. But he says, if you are an atheist, then you do have to believe that the main point in all religions of the world is just a huge mistake. (laughs) And if you're a Christian, then you have to believe that you're right. And the other religions, that Christians are right and other religions are wrong. And I think that's just because there's like, you either believe in Christ or you don't. You believe that he saves you or you don't. Right. But I think other religions do have good points to them. He he kind of equates it to like a math equation. 
math problem where there's only one right answer, but some answers are closer to being right than others. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was good. This is, that's an example of how he like kind of makes it very simple and like will explain things in terms that you can understand. All the time he brings it down to earth for you yeah. to be like, oh, okay, I get that. And I think that's the hard thing is like trying to figure out how to explain what he's saying without using his analogies, you know? I think we're going to get into the deep part. And so let's see if we can. So there are people that believe there's many different forms of God. He wants to know like, well, is God good or evil? And some people believe that the idea of good and evil is just like our human point of view. We made it up. There's good and then there's evil. And then he talks about the pantheistic I would say that view that God is like beyond all good and evil. If I understand this right, he says that he animates the universe like we animate our bodies. So is he like, are we like his pawns? Is that what they believe? Like he's making everything happen? Well, here's what else he says, that they believe that God is the universe. And if the universe didn't exist, then he wouldn't either. So anything that you find in the universe is a part of God. Okay. So if God is the universe, then every part has to be divine. So even the horrible and awful things that he created, those horrible, awful things, and it's because he is the universe. I don't know. This is another thing that hurts my head. So does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, because it keeps talking about how they think that he is the universe, where Christians believe that he made the universe. That is a big distinction. So Christians, this will help, I think, explain it. So Christians believe that God created the universe and he's separate from it. So it's like a man that is painting a picture, right? The man isn't the picture. He's not in the picture. His ideas are in it, but Mm -hmm. he's not in it. So Christians believe that God has created a world where things have gone wrong. So because he created it and he gave us agency, the agency he created is what allowed things to go wrong and that it's our job to make it right. And I thought that was kind of an interesting, interesting thought. Yeah. Well, and that he says it's pantheists that believe that God is the universe. And so he is in the bad and the good. And you hear people say, talk about that all the time. Well, a God who loves me wouldn't do this bad thing to me. And so that's kind of that point of view, probably without realizing it, God is in the bad stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that no, he created all of it. And therefore, there's some things that can go contrary to as well. And he's going to dive into this a little more clearly later on to where you can understand why he would create something to the level that it can have a choice. Right. If God is good and God created the universe, this is what people say, then how could anything in the world be wrong? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then he talks about when he was an atheist, how he thought, that the existence of pain and suffering kind of proved that there can't be a good God. And I think a lot of people think that. Like if there was God, he wouldn't let things happen to people, the children. He wouldn't let horrible, the horrible, awful things that we are witnessing now. He wouldn't let that happen if, if he was good. He says when he was an atheist, that's what he thought. The existence of pain and suffering proved that there cannot be a good God. And if you attempt to explain otherwise, then you're just avoiding the obvious. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? 
If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? In trying to prove that there was no God or that everything in reality was like senseless, he had to come to the conclusion that his idea of how things should be or justice was also senseless. So he says that atheism is just too simple. If nothing in the world has meaning, we wouldn't have found out that it had no meaning. Because there's meaning, because we have this idea of right and wrong, there has to be a God. Yeah. That's what his- Yeah, and that's really what it does all boil down to because he keeps coming back to that. I like his last point there. And he talks about dark. So at the end, he says, just ask if, if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we would never know it was dark and dark would be without meaning. We don't know there's an opposite I don't know. We just wouldn't have, we wouldn't know that there was meaning. Chapter two is called the invasion. And so again, he just reiterates, well, well, atheism is too simple, but also this view that he calls a Christianity and water view is also too simple. He says the view, which simply says there is a good God in heaven and everything is fine. Okay. So we can just go about, do whatever, because God is in his heaven all as well. That's also way too simple. And he talks about how anything that is real is not simple. You could even take something that maybe seems simple, like a cup, but it's not simple because whether it's glass or plastic or what or ceramic or anything, you break that thing down and you find that you have all kinds of chemicals and substances and elements that are going together. And, and then you can break it down to the very atoms, which is a very complicated structure as well, you know? And so nothing that's real is simple. So it makes sense that Christianity is not simple. Um, he also talks about how religion is not simple. And it's also not something that God invented because he said sometimes the argument is like, well, if God wants us to follow this religion, he needs to make it more simple. And he's like, first of all, God didn't invent religion. Religion is simply God's statement to us of certain quite unalterable facts about his own nature. That's very profound. That is what religion is. And I think that a lot of times we get this very skewed idea of what religion is when it actually ends up that that's more of a culture. Religion is what God tells us about his nature. And then we're trying to learn more about it and become more like him and all of that. So it's sort of an organized way of being able to do those things. He also talks about how when things are real, they're usually kind of unexpected and odd. And he points to something like the solar system, which, you know, he's like, you might expect that, you know, you hear you have the sun and then you would have all these planets that are like perfectly spaced and perfectly sized and kind of uniform in a way. But instead, they're all different sizes. There's no like pattern to their distances from the sun. And some have one, one moon, some have like seven one has a ring. So, you know, he says, you find no rhyme or reason that we can see. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. And he says, that is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity. I like that he said, it is never what we expect. Yes. When something is real. Yeah. And like he even talks about how we create life. That isn't something that is like, it's strange. Here's what he says. It's strange. <laughs> like, yeah, it is. 
yeah. the very act is quite strange. And the fact that, and he talks about this later, but just the fact that this, like, what was, what is the term that he uses? Basically this affection that, uh, that happens ends up in a new light that is quite unexpected. The thought I had when I read that later, as I was thinking about it, I was like, I wonder when the people figured out what was great. Right? If they were like, <laughs> wait a second, there's a connection here. Yeah, isn't that like- interesting? Because there had to have been a point where people were like, I mean, it is very, very natural. It's just something that just happens. It's just a natural draw, right? Which is kind of crazy itself. But then the fact that there's suddenly a bit, yeah, that would have been probably pretty whack many, many years ago. They see yeah. this connection. Like, hmm. So, so funny, but also true, probably. So he says there's only two views that face all the facts, Christianity and dualism. Christianity says that this is a good world that has gone wrong, but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. And dualism is the belief that there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything. The problem with that is that as soon as we say there is good and bad, first of all, how do we decide which one's good, which one's bad? Is that totally subjective? Is it according to our moods? But one way or the other, we decide that there's two dueling powers. One is good and one is bad. And because we say that, we are also automatically saying there's a third power at work, something that does determine what is bad and what is good. It can't just be left up to our moods. Like it can't be that. There has to be this overarching force or power or law that says this is the good power, this is a bad power, right? Which I wasn't really familiar with this idea of dualism. So that's kind of a new thing for me. And he talks about how people aren't bad just for badness sake. There's always a reason. He's like, now there is cruelty, but even within that, there's a reason. There's like sadists. They have a sexual perversion, which makes cruelty a cause of sensual pleasure to them, or it's for the sake of something they're going to get out of it. And he talks about how like, usually people are bad because they're pursuing something good in the wrong way. Badness is really just like goodness spoiled. Goodness is just good, where badness is the pursuit of something good in totally the wrong way or too much of it. And he he talks about how even like sexual perversion, that can only be a thing if we understand that there's sexual normalcy. You can't love badness for the sake of badness. It has to be in the pursuit of something good, even if it's like just good for you, probably. Yeah. He talks about how pleasure, money, power, safety, they are actually good things, but you know, too much and the wrong method for getting those things, that is what creates badness. Well, he says evil is a parasite, not an original thing, which I thought was really good. He says, I freely admit that real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament, seriously, was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebellion. He talks about the devil and how he's like, yeah, some people are going to be like, wait, you're bringing up the devil, like that horned creature. And he's like, I am talking about the devil. Yes. I don't know what he looks like, 
And he's like, if anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. But it's like, no, the devil is real. And there is a war going on, absolutely, between good and evil, between the devil and his minions and God and everybody who's trying to do right. So Yeah, and like they're just not equal. So the devil isn't equal to God and that he's like yeah. he's a fallen angel. Like you said, he he started out good. He went wrong. But yeah, he's just not the same, not equal. And then a petty inferior being, he's a fallen angel. So chapter three is called the shocking alternative. Hopefully this makes sense. As Christians, we have to accept that the devil has some power on earth. The question is, is this in accordance with God's will or is it not? If it is. He says it's kind of hard to believe that it is in accordance with God's will. If it isn't, how can anything be contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? So like, I I get that, that people are like, this doesn't make sense. Why is there bad? If he is a being of absolute power, why is he allowing all this, right? This is what Lewis says. It is not his will, but his will is what made it possible. I think this is so interesting. And he gave the the analogy of like children who mess up a bedroom. The mother doesn't want them to. That's not her will. But she gives them the choice to choose how they treat their bedroom, right? And they mess it up. So it's not her will, but she's allowing it. Well, and because you literally cannot, unless God decided to create robots, you cannot control somebody at every moment of every day. And let's be honest, as moms, sometimes we wish that we could because we are like, okay, look how clean this room is. Can it stay clean for like an hour? No. That'd be great. (laughs) No? No, because what would be the point? And he gets to that later. Like, what would be the point of there being a bunch of robots on the planet? There'd be no point. I'll get to this later when I talk about the book I'm reading this week, but that's what I've learned is you ultimately, as a mother, have no control. Zero. Yeah. The point, because everything we do is like trying to control them. So, so far in my book, in my class, I've learned that everything I do, I'm not supposed to do. So, (laughs) oh, that's always encouraging. That's right. I'm like, okay, finish the class so you can tell us what we're supposed to do. Because now I know that we're not supposed to do anything. And I'll explain it later. But here's what happened. God created things which have free will. And so we get to choose. Free will is what makes evil possible. It's also the only thing that makes goodness possible. Is that scripture like we have to have the good with the bad? Like there's opposites in everything there. And and if we didn't know evil, we wouldn't know good. Like we wouldn't have a clue. It's kind of like the whole idea of meaning in the world. And this is what I was getting at. A world full of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating. What would be the point? Yeah. And God knew what would happen if we used our free will in the wrong way. He says, this is a quote from the book, when you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. Perfect. Yeah. The question he asks is, how did this dark power go wrong? This next part, I think, was kind of interesting. He says it's because Satan tempted Adam and Eve with the idea that they could be like gods. And it was like that they could be more spiritual than God or or that they could be above him, I think is what he was getting at. And then he talks about how all human suffering is because Adam and Eve had this selfish desire to be as powerful as God. And I was thinking, isn't that what Satan is trying to do? Yeah, of course he is. That was his plan was like, yeah. And that's why he became the fallen angel is because he 
thought he could do better than God. He had a better plan. And so all the way along, he's always trying to continue with that same idea and everything that he does. I can mm. make it better. I, this is better. We're constantly trying to find something other than God that will make us happy. And I thought that was a really interesting thought because I think that's true. We're constantly looking in the world for something to make us happy. And when you think about it, I think it's kind of true that God made us to find happiness in him. So we're looking all around for this happiness and we're looking in all the wrong places. And it's like a car that runs on fuel. He said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. What did God do about this? Well, he gave us a conscience. So he gave us this sense of right and wrong. He then talks about how, like in all these civilizations, there's these stories of a God who dies and then comes to life again. And then by his death, he has somehow given new life to man. The Old Testament, the Jews in the Old Testament are like, that's the quote, hammer into mm -hmm. the Jews' heads, what his laws were. I loved this part of the chapter. Then he says, okay, then a man in the New Testament. Oh, so the Old Testament is the hammer to, into the Jews' heads, right? Yes. Then a man pops up in the New Testament talking as if he was God. Jesus, being a Jew, made this claim to be part God. And this claim is radical. It's like, what are you even talking about, right? The first shocking claim is that he can forgive another man's sins. I thought that was interesting. Not just things that happened to him, but he could forgive things that happened that you did to somebody else. Yes, and the way he describes this is just brilliant. I, I yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing. This is what he says. This is a quote. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. So he has to be God to be able to forgive sins that were committed against somebody else. Yeah. And to even care about it. Yeah. To even care about it because ultimately it was committed against him. If it, even if it yep. was committed against somebody else, because he talks about how it's like, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. He's like, what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes and stealing other men's money? <laughs> and it's like, I was just thinking, I was like, okay, so like, say you saw your two neighbors fighting over something. And you go to them and you're like, it's okay. I forgive you for doing that. <laughs> like, you'd be like, what? You're like, you can't Me? do that. Yes, that's not how it works. And so I love that he breaks it down this way because I think it's something that we just kind of take for granted. We're like, oh yeah, Jesus, he forgives sins. But do we understand how radical that is and how he would have to be God for it to even matter to him? Like somebody's not just going to come along and do that unless they're crazy. And he talks about that. And he says, hey, I'm part God. I can forgive people. But then yet at the same time, he was humble and meek. And people believed him. Yes. Even though what he's saying is actually the opposite of being mm -hmm. humble and meek. And I had this thought today. If Jesus did exist, if he did walk on the planet and say these things and do these things, if the Bible is actually talking about somebody who existed, then he has to be God. It has to be. And then I loved this part. Some people say, I am ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us 
not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think this is the first thing he said in this whole book that I'm like, oh my gosh. So powerful. Because he led up to it the way that he did, you're like, that's true. You can't just stop at him being a moral teacher. If you do, you clearly are not really paying attention to what he's even saying. Because then he's lying. You know? He can't be a so, great moral teacher when half of the stuff he says is a total lie. Exactly. Profound. I just underlined so much of this chapter, but it really struck me when it said, Christ says that he is humble and meek and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. And you already said that. I just want to reiterate it because that was something I was like, yeah, because <laughs> that's exactly how we always talk about it. He was humble and meek and so loving. And yet he was so powerful. But when you like break down a lot of the stuff that he says, you're like, if just a normal person on the street said that, we'd be like, that's crazy. Weird. Chapter four is called the perfect penitent. He's like, okay, look, it's obvious that Jesus was not a lunatic and he was not a fiend. Instead, he's God and he came to earth in human form. I love that because it always just touches me so much that Jesus, the person who created the earth and created everything, chose to come to earth as the most vulnerable of creatures. He came to earth as a baby who poops and pees and needs his mother to keep him alive, you know, completely dependent on somebody else. But he's going to talk about how he needed to do that because that that's against a God's nature. He goes into talking about how really at the root of Christianity is this idea that Jesus died and was resurrected and he died for us. And he's like, look, there are theories, but we're not meant to fully accept these theories about why Jesus had to die and everything. He's like, just as the scientist gives you a mental picture of an atom, but that's not like entirely factual. It's just so that the scientist can help you understand it. And it's not really what the scientist actually believes either. They believe more of this like mathematical equation that most of us just can't really understand. So they're giving us in it in terms that we can understand. And there's several things I wanted to share along with that. So he says, we believe that the death of Christ is just that point in history at which something absolutely unimaginable from outside shows through into our own world. If we found that we could fully understand it, that very fact would show it was not what it professes to be. Be the inconceivable, the uncreated, the thing from beyond nature striking down into nature like lightning. It's something that it's supposed to be beyond our comprehension. As mortals, we can't understand it and we don't, we don't have to. A man can eat his dinner without understanding exactly how food nourishes him. A man can accept what Christ has done without knowing how it works. He just says, by dying, Jesus disabled death itself. That was his formula. And that is Christianity. This is really good because honestly, this is something that I've thought about. Basically, he's like, look, if God was going to put us on earth and he always knew that he was going to like forgive our sins, why didn't he just start out with that? If God was prepared to let us off, why on earth did he not do so? Basically, like, why did an innocent person need to die? When I was a kid, this is what I thought. And I still don't understand the answer. So tell me. Right. Because if you think of a debt, there's plenty of point in a person who has some assets paying it on behalf of someone who has not. 
When one person has got himself into a hole, the trouble of getting himself out usually falls on a kind friend. It just made me think of the parable of the debtor. Jesus talks about the man who was in extreme debt. Another man came along and was like, I will pay it all for you. Because the man had gotten himself into a hole. He could not get himself out. And so someone who could get him out came along and did it for him. And really, it didn't ultimately hurt the man who got him out of the hole at all. It just helped the person who got out of the hole. And of course, made him like probably love that person immensely. What sort of a hole have we gotten ourselves into? Basically, it goes back to what you talked about with Adam and Eve. We tried to be better than God. We tried to like be on our own without God. And that doesn't work. It says man is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And really what that means, what that points to is repentance. Like for us to accept what Jesus has done, we need to repent. Surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That's the only way out of the hole. So that's what repentance is. Yes. But at the same time, he's like, it's really hard. It needs a good man to repent. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person and you would not need it. Less is what hurts your head. Yes. And so that's what it took was a perfect person to be able to pull us out of the hole. Okay. And so this is where he kind of brings it all together. He says, we would need God to put into us a bit of himself, lending us a little bit of his reasoning powers. He says, we now need God's help in order to do something which God in his own nature never does at all. Because again, to repent, we have to surrender. We have to admit we've done something wrong. We have to suffer. We have to surrender our will. We have to feel remorse. We have to make up for the thing that we have done, right? We have to sometimes pay people back. And he says, Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all. This is not something that's expected of a God to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. God can share only what he has. This thing in his own nature, he doesn't. But supposing God became a man, he could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man and he could do it perfectly because he was God. And so he makes this case for why Jesus would need to come to earth as a man so that he could perfectly help us and relate to us. Because as a God, at least from what we can draw conclusions about a God, that would not be possible for him to do or for God the Father to do. So as a man, he can do that and he can do it perfectly because he is God. Oh, I just wrote on here. Do your best to go through page 58. Okay. Sometimes when I read your chapters, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad she's doing this chapter. No. And then sometimes when I'm doing my chapter, I'm like, oh, I wish this wasn't mine. I am going to read the last little bit of this. He says it so well. Yes, he does. And I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm going to share this part. So hopefully it's a teaser enough that people will want to go and actually read the book. The perfect submission, the perfect suffering, the perfect death were not only easier to Jesus because he was God, but were possible only because he was God. But surely that is a very odd reason for not accepting them because he's talking about how some people are saying, well, but then that's not fair because it would have been easier for Jesus to die and to suffer because he's God. And he's like, why are you even questioning that? 
And these are the points he makes. He says, the teacher is able to form the letters for the child because the teacher is grown up and knows how to write. That, of course, makes it easier for the teacher. And only because it is easier for him can he help the child. If it rejected him because it's easy for grownups and waited to learn writing from another child who could not write itself and so had no unfair advantage, it would not get on very quickly. If I am drowning in a rapid river, a man who still has one foot on the bank may give me a hand which saves my life. Ought I to shout back between my gasps? No, it's not fair. You have an advantage. You're keeping one foot on the bank. That advantage, call it unfair if you like, is the only reason why he can be of any use to me. So saying that Jesus's sufferings and death lose all value because he is God, it doesn't make sense. The only reason he was able to do them is because he's God and came to earth as a man. To what will you look for help if you will not look to that which is stronger than yourself? Yeah, you're not going to ask for help from some, like if you're trying to write a paper for school, you're not going to ask your kindergartner to help you. You're going to ask somebody who is better than you. Yeah. And he had to be man so he could die. But he had to be God so he could lay down his own life. Mind blowing. I loved this chapter. Chapter four, but it was complicated. Yeah, it was, there was a lot. So chapter five, I did have a hard time. It's short. I read it and I had a really hard time summarizing it. And like you said, you have to take like a brain break, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm sitting there. I read it once and then I'm like reading it to do my outline or take notes. And I'm like reading the same sentence over and over and over again. Like, okay. I found myself doing the same thing. Yes. It's really complicated. Well, your kids don't go to school, but there's this thing on YouTube at school. They call them brain breaks. And the kids like- No, I'm super familiar with brain breaks. Oh, you are. I didn't know about those until I think she was doing them last year, but this year. And Presley turns them on all the time at home and dances. And we're trying to get Charlie to dance with her because- I think that would be really entertaining, but so far she's only gotten me and David to dance with her. That would be awesome. And every time Charlie comes in and we're doing one, he's like, dad, why didn't you do that for a job? And dad, David's like, I don't know. I missed my calling. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> oh, but it's like the opposite of his personality. <laughs> so chapter five is called the practical conclusion about what Christians believe. So the Christian, this is a quote, the Christian belief is that we somehow share humility and suffering of Christ. We shall also share in his conquest of death and find a new life after we have died and in it become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. Is this something that you thought before that we somehow share the humility and suffering of Christ? I I guess I thought that deeply. (laughs) I don't know. Okay. Well, that was new to me. So after we die, that's when we find happiness, our perfect happiness. Because I think we have happiness here, but like the perfect happiness comes after death. And then he says, in Christ, a new kind of man appeared and the new kind of life which began in him is to be put into us. And I want to say that this is like what you said last in the last episode is like the light of Christ. I believe that's what we, we that's we the tend to call it yeah yes the light of christ he, so he calls it, it the christ life yes exactly yeah this new life is spread in three different ways baptism belief and ritual a ritual is usually like communion sacrament mass like these ritual things that people do he says that different kinds of christians believe that these 
have varying levels of importance. For instance, he says he doesn't know why these three things are how we receive Christ's life in us, but he takes it on Christ's authority. And he's like, don't be afraid of the word authority. It just means it's somebody you trust that knows something. Yes. Um, And I love how he goes into that because he's like, look, like almost everything in your life, you take on authority. The solar system, atoms, evolution, every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us saw the Norman conquest or the defeat of Armada, but we accept it on authority. I've never been to England. But I believe it's there because I take it on authority. And the word authority, I think, freaks people out sometimes. (laughs) Right. And I think he knew that. And that's why he spent some time talking about, don't be afraid of taking things on authority. Like we do all the time. You need to realize that. Yes. So just like Mm -hmm. our lives are given to us by somebody else, basically our parents created us without our consent, we can lose that life by like, not feeding ourselves or neglecting ourselves or putting ourselves in danger or even taking our own life. So in the same way, a Christian can lose the Christ life, which has been put into him and he has to make efforts to keep it. And I liked that because it was like, so we're given, we're, we've been taught in our religion that like we're given the light of Christ when we're born, but we can lose it later in life. If we don't feed it, that can go away. That light can dim and go away. Yeah. So a Christian believes that he has the ability to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble because of the Christ life that is in him. Christians don't believe that God loves us because we are good, but that God makes us good because he loves us. Thought of that as like parenting too. And that's what I'm learning in my parenting classes that We don't want our children to believe that we love them because of the things that they do. We want them to believe that we love them just because we love them. And that's how God loves us. He just loves us. Otherwise, that would be a conditional love. And that is a horrible way for a child to live. And then I like this too. Christians believe that Christ is operating through us. So it's more than us believing in him or trying to be like him. He talks about us being like the body of Christ, that we're actually like his hands. We have to decide to join, I guess, to like be part of this body of Christ. And that the more of us that there are, the more good work can be done here on earth. And that comes in later. But he addresses, what about those that don't know about Christ? Is this just for people who've heard of him? And he says, we don't know. What we do know is that one, no man can be saved except through Christ. But we do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. (laughs) It's another like brain bursting. I don't know. Like, so we have to be saved through him, but we don't know that we have to know about him to be saved through him. Since Christians are Christ's body, then every addition helps him to do more. If we want to help those on the outside, we need to add ourselves to Christ's body. So his last point is the objection that he is, that Christ is kind of like the best kept secret of the world. That was my phrase that I just kind of came up with. Like, he's like, it's this like secret club, Mm -hmm. (laughs) people that know about him. People think, why is he not coming to the earth by force or like invading it? He says that Christians believe that he will come by force, but that he's waiting to give us time to decide to join his side. He says, God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then? 
when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. And I thought that was such a good thought that like, what would be the point? He wants us to decide before it's obvious. Yeah. So he knows what side are we really on? So he wants us to make the choice before. If he came in and he was like, hey, I, you know, here I am, which he kind of did. But like, and I talk about this a lot with people in my life. Like, that's what faith is. What would be the point of having faith if we just knew? Yeah. If it was provable, 100% obvious, undeniable. What would and be what the- would be the challenge of this life? Really? There wouldn't be one. And our bodies, our minds crave a challenge. And yet the most obvious one that's there, a lot of people balk at it and say, well, no, but I don't want to have faith. Like that shouldn't be a thing. Well, I mean, we all do, but there's so many things that we're like, that's hard. But that's why we're here to figure out this faith thing and to figure out how to keep following God, even when it's very difficult so that he knows which side we're on. Yeah. Yeah. I think every chapter, there's something in it that I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) that makes sense. I loved Right here, when he is talking about, he says, a live body is not one that never gets hurt, but one that can, to some extent, repair itself. A Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up, begin over again after each stumble. And that willingness to repent is where it's at, right? If he's not willing to repent, then that sets him apart. Like that's not what we want. And so I just wrote a note here and I it said like that's why we can be worthy. I taught a class many years ago talking about worthiness. There was a man in it who was like, but we can never be worthy because we can never be perfect. We can never be exactly like God. And that gave me pause and I was like, I mean, yeah, I guess that's true, but really this kind of answers that question. He's like, worthiness is not about I'm just going to insert the word worthiness. It's not about never going wrong, but it's about that willingness to keep repenting and keep trying, pick yourself up, begin over again after each stumble. And sometimes that picking up process is going to take a little bit longer and be a little more involved before you're back standing up again, but you keep doing it. And so that's why you can be worthy, I think. And then I love very end of it where he was like, now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. So, and I think that's a fantastic way to end this whole section. Yeah. That last page was really good. I I had some stuff highlighted. So next week we'll do book three, Christian behavior. Quite lengthy. We're, our approach is going to be a little bit different for that one, just because there is so much to it. Well, it's been fun. It's just heavy. <sighs> so just mind melting. Mind bending. <laughs> mind bending. So good for us, I'm sure. Right? I'm sure this is making progress in my brain. I'm getting smarter. <laughs> we sure hope so. There's got to be some. So. <laughs> for my class, I'm reading... You mentioned conditional love. The book is called Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Kahn. Like I said, I have been told that I'm doing everything wrong. You're not supposed to praise your children. You're not supposed to criticize them or praise them, use rewards. It's crazy. 
he kind of lays it out why we shouldn't do these things. And mostly it's because they think we love them because they're doing certain things. I think it's going to get to the more to the point where it's kind of like the growth mindset idea that mm-hmm. we're supposed to praise them for their effort, not for what they're doing. Because you have to praise your children. And it talks about why we do those things. We do those things because we want them to do certain things. We want them to clean their room. And so we give them rewards for cleaning their room or we want them to behave at a restaurant. And so we tell them when they do that they're doing a good job. But then they think that we love them only because they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know. It's kind of fascinating. And that, I mean, that makes sense. At the same time, though, like if a kid does a really great job cleaning their room, you can definitely go in and say, you worked so hard. But then you stop yourself from saying this looks great. You shouldn't say that. I don't know yet. Because probably as a kid, you'd be like, does it look good or does it not? You know what I'm saying? I, Or they come home and they're like, I aced my test. You know, you're like, you studied so hard for that. I mean, that's the thing is it's so natural to say great job. Like, yeah. That's awesome. You did such a great job, you know. But we have to look at why we're doing these things or why we say these things to them. It's because we want them to do it again. But in the end, you should go look up YouTube videos by Alfie Khan because you mm-hmm. can just watch. He'll talk. He talks like they have like presentations he does and stuff. And it's kind of interesting, but it's like extrinsic motivation doesn't even work anyways. What they find is that these kids that were their parents were super strict and like did a lot of punishments and rewards when they grow up, like they do do what their what their parents want them to do, but then either they hate their parents later or they just go off the rails after they are on their own. It's just interesting. It's making me think. In the class too, they're like, we know this sounds weird. Just keep with us. <laughs> so I mm-hmm. think there's more coming. It has made me like think when I'm dealing with, especially Presley, you know, like we went to Costco the other day and she lost it like as we were leaving. And you know, we get in the car and she's like screaming at us to turn on a certain song. And it's like, I don't even know what to do now. <laughs> I don't know because I find myself saying things to her that I'm like, oh, that was bad. Another thing is like how timeout is bad because we're withdrawing love from them. We're saying you weren't behaving the way I want you to behave. So now you have to be over there away from me because I and they perceive that as like mom doesn't love me. I don't know. I kind of feel like a lot of that could be in the way that it's gone about, though, because sometimes it's just that they need a little bit of time. I guess I think about I deal with Cass daily in the kid care where I work. And so a lot of times he is just like overstimulated. And so he starts like going after the kids and he thinks all the toys are his because he's at the kid care every day for four hours a day. And so he thinks they're, you know, invading his space. And so he'll try to take the toys from them and things like that. And so I don't get mad at him, especially where he's my sixth kid. It's a lot easier to not get mad at him. I like give him a love and I'm like, you just need some time, but it's still a timeout technically, I guess, but he needs, there needs to be some space put between him and the other kids for a little while, you know, and I can't necessarily hold him right there, but he's two, right? He's two. So like one of the things I said is like when they taught timeout, you know, probably when we were kids is when timeout became a thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. 
you need to have some time to go think about what you did. And he's like, do you think that kid is thinking about what he did? No, he's thinking about how much he's mad at you. Two-year-old's different. Because you're not like, Cass, go sit over there and think about what you did. Yeah. And you're like, you need some space. And sometimes parents need a timeout. Like, I need to walk away and take some deep breaths. Together. Yeah. And I guess that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. I feel, I'm, and maybe not everybody is thinking that way, but I just feel like there's so many situations where maybe timeout is the wrong term for it, but everybody needs some time and space. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with that because it's not withdrawing love. And I would hope that a kid, I mean, maybe that's what my kids always think is mom's withdrawing love, but it's like, we all need a little bit of time to like regroup. Yeah. Think about this. It's just fast. It's just fascinating. Just the idea of conditional parenting is like, what are we portraying to them? Well, I'll have to look into that book and be prepared to just be called out on everything. I know. Cause I can't say anything to her anymore. Yeah, because they they haven't given you what you're supposed to say, <laughs> just everything you're not supposed to say. We have these discussions every Wednesday night, and we're always like, okay, well, now I can't say you did a good job. Okay, now I can't put you in timeout. So what am I supposed to do? Good grief. Yeah, that's hard. Well, you, but... And one of the big things is you don't want them to feel like you're controlling them, because that's a big problem. Yeah, yeah. That, that's as hard. a parent, that's what we want to do. I know. And that is... <laughs> I mean, we don't want robots, but sometimes we do. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Hopefully you're reading something a little more fun. Well, I am finally listening to, I don't even know how long this, I had this on hold. It's called The Covenant of Water. Have you heard of this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like everybody has, I've seen it everywhere. I think it's an Oprah book, isn't it? Yes. It's by Abraham Verghese. The audiobook is read by the author and he's fantastic. The one thing I will say is you look at it and it's really intimidating because it's 31 hours. However, the pace that he reads it at, I very easily bumped it up to double time and it's not even that fast. At 1.75, I was like, this is kind of slow. So I bumped it up to double time and mine won't go faster than double time. So double time is like perfect. And so my point is it's really only like 15 and a half hours. That's still a lot, but that's totally, yeah, it's not 31. Super interesting. It's about Christians in India, like at the turn of the 20th century, you're kind of getting the complications of England having a presence there and like the good and the bad that came with that and the culture of the Indian people. And it starts out this 12 year old marries a 40 year old. So there's that. It is not, we're just going to say it's not consummated until she's 16. So I mean, he's still 44, but like he wait, he does not ever like take advantage or hurt her or anything like that. And we just have to remember that like all times were not like 2023 or even the 90s or the 80s or anything, you know, when it was like, oh my gosh, she wasn't 18. Well, that just hasn't always been a thing. And I just don't think that people understand or appreciate that. I'm glad that this is not how things are now. Here's a little summary of it. Stunning and magisterial epic of love, faith, and medicine set in Kerala, South India, following three generations of a family seeking the answers to a strange secret, the covenant of water. Because what they found is that in their family tree, so many people have died by drowning. 
span the years 1900 to 1977, so quite a long time. They suffer a peculiar affliction in every generation. At least one person dies by drowning. In Kerala, water is everywhere. At the turn of the century, a 12-year-old girl from Kerala's Christian community grieving the death of her father is sent by boat to her wedding where she will meet her 40-year-old husband for the first time. From this unforgettable new beginning, the young girl and future matriarch Big Amachi will witness unthinkable changes over the span of her extraordinary life, full of joy and triumph as well as hardship and loss, her faith and love the only constants. A shimmering evocation of a bygone India and of the passage of time itself. The covenant of water is a hymn to progress in medicine and to human understanding and a humbling testament to the hardships undergone by past generations for the sake of those alive today. I just heard really good things about it. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm really enjoying it so far. And like I said, the author is the narrator and he does a fantastic job. I want to read it someday, but yeah, like I'm glad you said that because 31 hours is overwhelming to me. That would take me like. Probably a couple of weeks, but well, and that's the thing, like with um the place so on Libby, you only get two weeks. And I was like, How am I gonna listen to this whole thing? Because then it'll go back in and then it'll be like several months before I can get it back. But really, it's only fifteen and a half hours. I feel like that's a lot more doable. Okay, so really quick, I want to read just the beginning of the d- description for the book I recommended because I think it would okay. help do a better job of what than what I said, because now everybody's like, what is this book about? Okay. One basic need all children have is to be loved unconditionally, to know that they will be accepted even if they screw up or fall short. Yet conventional approaches to parenting, such as punishments, rewards, and other forms of control teach children that they are loved only when they please us or impress us. Khan cites a powerful, a body of powerful and largely unknown research detailing the damage caused by leading children to believe that they must earn our approval. That's precisely the message children derive from common discipline techniques, even though it's not the message most parents intend to send. So I hope that did a better job of explaining. And I think we all know that we need to amend our parenting. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because it's, that's not something that's going to necessarily come naturally, but what comes naturally is not necessarily right. So and we just do a lot of what we do is what we learn from our parents. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it talks about that, like how sometimes you say things and you're like, where did that come from? Well, my mom used to say that to me. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Not that our parents were wrong, but that was 1980. Just we've come a ways. So we did it. And I, I don't know. I think at the end of this book, I'm going to feel very, very accomplished. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, book three. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first, or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week. Let's get started. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> no, um, I was just fine. <laughs> sounded like I was ready for a basketball game. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. That's right. With with near Christianity. <laughs> yeah.